Are you an overwhelmed SaaS founder ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those you don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Maines. Welcome back to the Sassfield Podcast, where tech founders engage in an intense battle of virtual thumb wrestling, with each victory earning them a portion of their next funding round. Yeah, that may be the best use case for the metaverse that I've seen. Well, I am your host, Jeff Maines. I help B2B SaaS founders like you scale from seven figures, which is good, to eight and nine figures, which is outstanding. We create capital-efficient growth together, premium valuation, and create freedom so that you build a business you're proud of without sacrificing your family on the altar of MRR. SaaS stock is going on this week. It's great to see some of the same faces and companies that were at Ascent conference last week. Uh, This week is also Tech Week in Silicon Valley, San Francisco, San Jose. So there's a lot going on in SaaS world. My favorite part about any of them is just being back in person with other founders, leaders, and people doing amazing things. Connection is incredibly important. And last year was kind of getting back to normal, and it seems like now we're pretty much there. I mean, granted, it's a little bit state-dependent, but for the most part, it's really good to be connected with people in person again. My second favorite thing about events like that is finding new solutions. Uh, Last week at Ascent, we're able to save 11% off our AWS bill, which is pretty significant. It's like going to an event and somebody saying, hey, would you like a free FTE? Uh, Yes, please. So that was a a really, really great thing. Last year at Saster, found a new company to do our security audits and save significant time and, and a little cash too. So many new things, better, faster, and sometimes cheaper, but I'll always take better and faster any day. It's an interesting crossroads standing at the intersection of new, unknown, better, and the old, familiar. Choosing the right solution can feel a bit like standing in front of a big vending machine with a mass array of colorful candies. So how do we make the right choice? How do we ensure that we're not just selecting the shiniest option? Because that's so easy to do. But picking the thing that really fits our business. I mean, shiny objects are the bane of leaders. And maybe more so in SaaS because we're exposed to so many of them so fast. Uh, Getting it right, I think, is first about knowing your business inside and out. What's your vision, your goals, your capabilities? What's the right next problem to solve? Now, saving time, saving money, increasing revenue, growth, efficiency, maybe efficient growth. It's a little like knowing your candy cravings before approaching the vending machine. You know, what are you really looking for? Uh, Not just looking to, to browse and see what's there. Uh, the next up is doing your homework and evaluating each option, comparing the true pros and cons, not just a feature list, but how would you actually use it? Diving into the real data and most importantly, listening to your team and maybe even your clients too. Your team and clients, you know, those two groups provide insights that are often the missing puzzle piece in the decision-making process. Keep in mind that even the best decisions involve some level of risk. I mean, that's just part of the entrepreneurial thrill ride. Be bold enough to make a choice, flexible enough to pivot if needed, and resilient enough to learn from any missteps. I mean, you'll make them. I do. We all do. Making a winning decision for your business isn't about avoiding mistakes. It's about making an informed choice, embracing the journey, and savoring the sweet taste of progress. After all, in the vending machine of business, every good decision brings us one step closer to success and solving the problems that we want to solve. Our sponsor today is TechPond. Their goal is to help every business choose the right software. So when you're looking for a new solution, a great place to start is TechPond. Search by category, latest editions, most popular in a category, and best of all, honest reviews from users. How does it work in the real world? Does it really match the hype? And ultimately, that's what we want to know, right? Beyond the sales pitches, the white papers, and candy-coated testimonials, you know, is this the right solution? And what do actual users say about it? And what alternatives are there out there that I don't know about yet? I mean, it's easy to engage with the usual suspects, right? What's new and exciting, better, faster, and maybe cheaper? And that's what you can learn at TechPond. You can find your next great solution at techpond.com. That's T-E-K-P-O-N. 
And also be sure to check out the Tech Pond SaaS podcast. Christian does a great job talking with founders and highlighting great solutions in SaaS. Uh, the best episode they've had so far is number 14. I'm just saying. <laughs> They're a great group of people led by co-founders, Alexandru and Alina. You can catch up with them today and tomorrow at SaaS Talk as well. Go tell them you heard about them on the SaaS Fuel podcast. And Jeff said they're awesome people. They'll love that. Well, speaking of awesome people, our founder on Tuesday was Melissa Kwan, co-founder and CEO of eWebinar, an automated webinar solutions that combines pre-recorded video with real-time interactions and live chat to deliver an engaging experience for attendees. Super sharp founder who has built a business that she runs. It doesn't run her. And she built it that way on purpose. So there's lots of lessons there. Such a great interview with Melissa. And her expert guest last week was Bobby G. Bobby Gillespie, brand growth consultant, author, and founder and principal of Proper Design. Solid marketing insights about differentiating your business in a crowded market. And we all want to do that. So if you missed either one of those episodes, go back and give them a listen for sure. My guest this week is Sam Baker, principal at Scale Venture Partners. Well, prior to Scale Venture Partners, Sam was a growth manager at Tilt, where he built out the company's user acquisition and retention programs before they were acquired by this company you may have heard of called Airbnb. Sam joined Scale in 2016 and focuses on opportunities in both business and infrastructure software with particular interest in the next phase of workplace productivity tools online marketplaces, cybersecurity, and frontier technologies. His efforts contributed to the firm's investments in Locust Robotics, CyberGRX, Dusty Robotics, Socure, Soft Robotics, Perimeter X, and Proxy. I think one of the most interesting things about Scale Venture Partners is the facet of their business called the Scale Studio. So I'll let Sam tell you more about that. Welcome one of the good guys in private equity, Sam Baker. Hey, Sam, welcome to SaaS Fuel. Jeff, great to see you. Thanks so much for having me on today. Well, tell me a little bit about your background at Box and Tilt and now Scale Venture Partners. No, absolutely. I really appreciate you having me on today. And uh, it's, it's, it's been, a, been a fun journey that's led me up here. Um, I moved out to the I'm born and raised in the, in the greater Boston area and uh, went to college in, in Rhode Island and, and then back up to Boston for my first job. Um, out of school, which was working for uh, a private equity and venture capital fund of funds, which is, you know, what got me intrigued by the valley and what was going on out here on uh, the tech ecosystem more broadly. I'm the only person in my family that hasn't started my own company, and, and definitely have a little bit of entrepreneurial DNA in me. And you know, just started seeing all of the velocity and interesting companies that were being built in the valley uh, in that first job, which which brought me out here about a decade ago. I was an early employee at, at, at Box. Uh, I started off on the sales side, actually. Uh, it's, it's, and on a personal side, it's, it's where my wife and I met, uh, which changed my life in That's a completely awesome. different capacity, which was a, t- a ton of fun. <laughs> extra and, special. Um, and what's that? <laughs> That's extra special. Ex- yeah, extra special. <laughs> 100%. And, um, you know, we were just growing a mile a minute um, at, at Box and... You know, started off as an inside sales rep there, and then once we built out a more sophisticated finance function, I hopped over to the strategic planning and analysis team to help uh, prepare the company to go public, and was there for a couple of years. Um, bounced over to Tilt um, afterwards in 2014 to to work with one of my one of my closest friends, old, his oldest brothers, in a growth capacity, helping with user acquisition and, and retention there, and. Um, you know, Scale was an early investor in, in, in Box. Uh, we led the, the company's Series C, um, you know, back in 2009. And that's how I originally learned about the firm and, and interacted with one of the partners that I work with very closely here, Rory O'Driscoll. And from that point on, came full circle. And I'd always been interested in the investment ecosystem as well. And an opportunity came up as a first-year associate with Scale uh, a couple of years later. And, um, you know, it was a perfect opportunity to marry what I had been doing before uh, on the investing side, but also working for, for a company that, you know, wound up being one of the company's more successful investments and, and marrying those two worlds together. So I've been here for seven years ever since and um, continue to grow with the firm, which has been a ton of fun. I think that's really interesting, full circle, starting that way and then, you know, really ending up, uh, but, you know, moving to the dark side. From the uh, East Coast to West Coast, right? <laughs> a little, how a little how different is it in uh, Silicon Valley versus Boston? What do you see as the, the differences? 
you know, there, there's a lot of similarities and, and then some differences yeah. as, as well. Um, you know, I, I think both cities tend to have this uh, entrepreneurial uh, mindset. You know, you've got yeah, a lot of absolutely. venture investing in, in both places. I, I think because of the hospital network, you tend to have a little bit more of an orientation on the early stage startup side in Boston that's more geared towards medical devices and the biotech ecosystem than you do out here. But that that's rapidly changing. In, I guess if you look at the, the history of Silicon Valley, you've got a lot of uh, some of the greatest enterprise software companies that were built in and around the Bay Area. You've got Salesforce, you've got, you've got Workday, you've got ServiceNow, et cetera. And a lot of those companies, you know, spawned alumni that started the next generation of great SaaS companies. And it is, you know, it's obviously been a place where the venture ecosystem was born and a lot of the capital. And so you've got those two worlds that are colliding. But um, you've got great academic institutions out here. You got Stanford, Berkeley, Caltech and Boston. You've got MIT. You've got you've got Harvard. Um, and you've got you've got Brown, uh, Yale, not too far away. And you've got a lot of really, really intelligent research and minds coming out of both of those places. And so you know, there's some similarities and there's some differences as well. Uh, it's always interesting just to have people that have been in, in both worlds and, and kind of compare and contrast. Uh, but there's, there, you're right. There are a lot of similarities and just absolutely brilliant people in both of those markets. And absolutely. And that, that's one of the best parts about this job, honestly, is, 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 is that, you know, I, I spend my time. Um, you know, talking to hundreds and hundreds of entrepreneurs every every year um, that are going, you know, 10, 20, 30 X deeper in a space that, than we are. And, you know, just learning what's getting them ticking, what kind of opportunity that they see. It, it's just a job where the learning curve never plateaus. And, you know, you're always talking to people that are tinkering around with interesting things. And our job is to figure out whether or not there's a good investment opportunity there. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So what are you looking at today? I mean, we've seen some changes over the last year or so in the, the market for sure. A little uncertainty in the future. What things are getting you excited today? Sure. Yeah. And maybe it helps to give a little bit of context on, on what we're doing at Scale Venture Partners. And yes. Just, just to frame, uh, before I dive into what's quote unquote interesting to us, I mean, uh, just taking a huge step back, I, I mean, you know, working with Scale Venture Partners, you know, we're a Bay Area focused uh, early stage venture capital fund um, that's been around for 20 plus years, um, focused mostly on the first or second go to market round of of early stage enterprise software, right, and, and frontier technology. So, what that really amounts to is is that we're doing mostly Series A's and Series B's. You know, once companies are finding that go to market inflection point and and go to market repeatability, which which we'll probably get into a little bit later today. Um, and so, you know, what's the way that we sort of divide our house here is, is that roughly half the team focuses on application related software and the other half of the team focuses more on the infrastructure layer. So that's developer tools, cybersecurity and, and cloud infrastructure. And then there's some of us that focus a little bit in between those two worlds. You know, I, I tend to focus mostly on the application side of the house. Um, you know, looking for companies that are doing something, you know, broadly horizontal, whether that's a productivity tool like Blank Box or DocuSign um, or something that's a little bit more vertical specific that's working, um, in, whether it's in the construction vertical, legal vertical, working with um, industrials or logistics providers as some of our robotics deals have. And, you know, for me, I, you know, I, I tend to focus uh, mostly around companies that are adding some sort of intelligence to the built world. Whether that's using software, machine vision, sensors, uh, you know, I've I've had the fortunate um, ability to be involved in all of our robotics-related investments to date, and you know, whether you're talking about Dusty Robotics, which is automating the layout process for commercial construction projects, or Locus Robotics, which is really changing the dynamics of how um, the back end of the e-commerce world works um, in terms of warehouse automation. That's the type of stuff that's that's getting me excited today, and there's so much opportunity for in, within these markets. Without a doubt. And how do you see those markets developing uh, over the, the next few years? I think it really, de really depends specifically on the market that you're thinking about. And, you know, obviously, I wish I had a, a crystal ball in front of me, sure. right? <laughs> um, but I don't. And, you know, if, uh, just taking the e-commerce and a market that Locus is attacking, for example, um, you know, the growth around e-commerce over the last few years was was undeniable. And, you know, you've got this convergence of more and more people ordering their goods and services online than you ever have before. 
Right. Um, but you have an ongoing later labor shortage and infrastructure shortage uh, in helping fulfill those orders. Right. So that, you know, the warehouses can't keep up with the velocity of orders that they're receiving and they can't hire fast enough to help people to help folks, you know, get goods in and out the door. And that's that's exactly what Locust is, is, is helping uh, to fix is, is, is that they build autonomous mobile robots that work alongside the associates to just augment uh, how much time they spend walking from goods to goods um, and, and how much time it takes and how much effort it takes to fulfill a specific order. And, um, you know, that's that's a market that is just it's really in its first inning of development, despite how large it is. I mean, there's roughly roughly a couple million warehouse associates just in the U.S. alone. And, you know, a, a chunk of them are working for Amazon. You've got folks that are working for some of the, the other large 3PLs like DHL, FedEx, UPS. Right. Um, but that that market is is something that's going to continue to grow uh, at a rate that's you know that's well outpacing you know the the U.S. or, or global GDP for that matter. Yeah, I think it has to expand because that's one of the the biggest costs for businesses. And and like you said, it's the the people shortage, labor shortage. Whether it's people don't want to do that that work or it's not interesting, or you know there's there's so many other opportunities. Absolutely. And you've got a lot of confluence going on around what's happening in those labor pools, right? I mean, these are these are challenging jobs. You know, folks are, you know, before an automation solutions comes in, comes in, you know, you've got folks that are walking 10, 12, 14 miles a day within the warehouse to fulfill right. these jobs. Um, and there's a lot of other automation solutions going on inside. You know, you've got forklifts, you've got pallets, you've got people running around pretty frantically. Um, they can be dangerous places to work in some cases and, you know, they're not a high paying job at all. And so you've got folks that are willing to switch, uh, to run across the street, uh, simply because the pay, the pay is, you know, marginally better than it was doing what they're doing. And so these warehouse operators, while the SLAs that they have from their customers are getting stronger and stronger and stiffer and stiffer, it's getting harder and harder for them to retain the labor to help fulfill these orders. And so we look at a market like that and say, the only logical solution to a certain extent is to use technology to help bridge those gaps. Right. Yeah, bridging the gap and driving costs out of the model and makes <laughs> it even more accessible. Right. You know, and, because and you just can deliver faster. Making the model more efficient, right? Yeah. Uh, you're in San Francisco, not too far. And so one of the, the things that I saw there last time I was in was uh, in the airport, they have uh, a, a barista. So it's a robot that will actually make coffee. Oh, interesting. And I thought, you know, if that's uh, that's where we're going, I think that is, you know, certainly a possibility. Is we're starting to see more restaurants invest in that kind of technology. You know, wh- what are the limitations? And I think we'll we'll see those pushed uh, over time. Yeah, and it's interesting. I'd, I'd be I'd be curious which terminal you saw that in. <laughs> um, <laughs> but no, I, I know I know that there are. The robotics are creeping their way into a bunch of different verticals. You know, it's 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 not just e-commerce. It's not just construction. You're seeing more and more uh, streamlined food services operations um, using robotics. Now, you know, people have been talking robotic about robotics for you know half a century at this point, and people were predicting that in 2000, um, you know, we'd be driving around in flying cars, right, and that right. robotics, robots would be making it, <laughs> making us <laughs> making us coffee or cooking us dinner. The, the truth of the matter is, is, is that robots are really good at, ham, at handling today, anyway, very simple tasks, right? I mean, these are um, with without a, a, a huge amount of complexity that's added to them. And I think that that's one of the things that's one of the big differences between what we see on the ground and what you might read, you know, in headlines and TechCrunch or, you know, elsewhere in the media. Is, is that, you know, you're not going to have a robot that's going to prepare you a three star Michelin rated uh, right. You know, right. <laughs> there's there's too much finesse. <laughs> there's too much judgment. Uh, there, there's too, too much human capability that goes into preparing something complex. It's a big mix uh, of art and science. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And, you know, the truth of the matter is, is, is that if, if you've ever interacted with, uh, I don't want to say a vending machine, but, you know, a, an automated coffee barista, you were interacting with a robot. It might not look or, or perceive one like one. Right. Um, but if you were to open up the inside of that machine, uh, chances are you, you know, what you saw at SFO was not all that different from something that might have been there 10 years ago. Yeah, that's entirely <laughs> possible. Yeah, it's amazing just some of the, the advances in technology. 
It is. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's pretty remarkable. And, um, I mean, again, that's, that's one of the exciting parts about this job is this, is that not only are you talking to meeting new people all the time, um, that are going 20, 30, you know, times deeper than you are in a specific subject matter, but they're also in some cases working on a technology that is, you know, has the potential to transform the way that we work and the way that we, the way that we interact and go about our day-to-day lives. And that's fascinating to me. It's not just, you know, what they're doing, but it's how they're thinking. It, it's kind of getting inside their head, how they envision the future and, and they're creating that future. Right. Making it happen. Right. Absolutely. So as, as we take some of these things to market, you talked about like, you know, go to market inflection, mm-hmm. um, you know, define that a little bit for the audience and, and how do we know when we're there? hundred percent. And this is, this is one of the key questions that, you know, I get all of, all of the time and, um, tried to, you know, a few years ago, I, I put together a, a blog post around what we call uh, go to market repeatability. You know, if they're, you know, the doing the first or second go to market round, um, outside of almost anything else that we're looking at, you know, you've got to, you've got to be selling into a big market. You know, you've got to have a team that you think can go the distance. You know, you have to have viable unit economics, but the one thing that really separates our stage from from others that go a little bit early, other investors that invest a little bit earlier than we do, or a little bit later, is, is this notion of go to market repeatability. And for us, that that really has a sense from an entrepreneur is is that you have identified product market fit, and that you understand who your customers are, how to sell to them, and then how to retain them. I mean, that's, that's kind of the core definition, but then there are a bunch of underlying, yeah, as you peel back the onion, there are a bunch of underlying characteristics sure. that you can get a little bit more nuanced, but, but that's the key thing is, is, is that if we were to invest, if we were to lead your series a, uh, with 10, 10 or $15 million of new money that you would know from a sales and marketing perspective, how to use those dollars to add on to what you've been doing and build out that go-to-market operation. And so what are the, the six signs of go-to-market repeatability? And we'll definitely link your, your post in the oh, show. Oh, sure. <laughs> if, you to, if you want to do that, 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 that that's great. Um, yeah. you know, and, and, and these are things that, again, and these are not just the six signs that you, you need to focus on. Um, and these were, you know, these were just six key examples that I was thinking about. And as having more and more conversations with, with entrepreneurs, things that were coming up more and more often. Um, I mean, the first is, is figuring out who you're selling to. You know, it's, it's identifying your target, target customer and understanding the market that, that they participate in. It's knowing how to qualify that customer and figure out whether or not they're a good prospect for you and whether or not they have an interest and budget to buy. Understanding the pipeline diagnostics is, 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 is that this is more relevant for folks at a slightly later stage. And you're not going to have, have this nailed coming right out of the gate, probably in doing your series A's and B's, but something that we, that we un- understand going forward, you know, signing healthy contracts uh, is, is that there's a lot of folks that are willing to give solutions away early on, uh, especially as they want to want to get a couple of key logos uh, so that they can start generating that flywheel, focusing on key retention um, and, and finding those expansion levers. But one thing that I, I, I didn't have in that blog post was just keeping things simple. A lot of, fo- a lot of folks over-engineer the complexity of what they're thinking about and you know, going through that and, and, and making it seem as though they're kind of jumping over hoops where it's, you know, getting too far away from understanding who your customers is and, and whether or not they want to buy, making sure that you have a process that, that's simple, it's dialed in and it's in tune. Really, really helpful. So what mistakes yeah. have you seen founders make, um, you know, in those areas? <sighs> yeah. And, it, you know, it's, it, it's tough to say is, is, is that, it depends from, from, from company to company. I, I think one of, one of the biggest false signals that you, that, that can happen within this ecosystem when you're first generating your customers is, is that, you know, some of those early customer engagements don't wind up being as repeatable as you think they are. Is this, is that these are customers that have come from, you know, the executive's key relationships, uh, or if they were part of, you know, just using Y Combinator, if they were one of your batch mates, uh, you know, they're willing to try and buy your solution simply because they know you very well. That um, happens a lot. It does. <laughs> it, yeah. it, it does frequently. And, and like, that's not a repeatable go-to-market motion, right? Is, is that a repeatable go-to-market motion is, is, is when, when the CEO uh, or his or her co-founder can take a step back, 
hire somebody else on the go-to-market side into that role and have them repeat the same process that you did or add a nuance and, and you know, bring you know, their Rolodex of customers and do the same thing, that's much more of a repeatable signal. You see a lot of folks get tripped up over you know, selling out proof of concepts or what we call POCs. <clears throat> These can be paid or unpaid engagements. A lot of folks just make the assumption that those are just automatically going to convert into annual contracts. And a lot of times they, they don't, is, is that you've, you've got a budget for experimentation, you know, especially at certain larger businesses where they're willing to tinker around with your solution for months, quarters, or even years, you know, especially if, there, if there's no budget involved. And you see, you see a lot of folks, um, you know, kind of confuse those early proof of concepts with more stable, healthy, longer term engagements. But I think the biggest mistake looking back is, is, is that people thinking that they've found that repeatable motion too early, and then they go out and they hire, they, they build out a massive sales team, they build out a marketing team, and then they see a lot of customers churn and, or, uh, they, they, they realize that they don't have a repeatable playbook. And then suddenly you've got a bunch of headcount, you're paying, you know, your sales, your sales and marketing motions become very inefficient. And that's a really, that's a much more difficult thing to unwind. Yeah, without a doubt. So what are the, the four vital signs of SaaS? I know one of the things you have is Scale Studio and, uh, and you talk about it in there. So well, that's something else we'll definitely link in the show notes because there's so much great information there, the benchmarks and the tools. But uh, you talk about four vital signs. The, these are so, so this is something that the broader scale team has been working on over the last few years. And you know we're a very metrics-driven firm and try to whatever extent we can understand you know what what are the existing what are the backward and forward looking metrics that you know really help entrepreneurs diagnose whether or not they have a healthy business you know just like a a doctor or nurse um, is going to take vital signs with a patient when they when they're admitted to the er you know they, they might take your pulse they might take your blood pressure just to get a basic sense of where you are we've done the same thing with with SaaS and cloud businesses and you know carried them down into what we call vital signs the four of them, you know, are your growth as a business, you know, you know, how quickly is your, is your ARR growing? How quickly are you adding net new ARR? How quickly is your revenue being recognized? How efficient are you as a business? And, and typically, um, you can look at the overall efficiency of a business um, based upon its total spend. We tend to narrow in on, on sales and marketing efficiency. We've called you know, my, my partner again, Rory Driscoll, a number of years ago, I honed in on what he called something that it was called the magic number. Um, and this is basically how much new revenue are you generating based upon the backward looking sales and marketing spend that you have as a business. So it's it's growth efficiency. Churn is the third one. Uh, thinking about like, you know, not only is, is you know, what something that's important to take a look at is, is how quickly are you, are you growing as a business, but the health of, of whether or not you're retaining them. Is, is, is that growth is meaningless if, if you can't hang on to your customers. Right. And the final signal is, is you know, is, is cash burn. Is this, you know, how much money are you having to pour into the business um, in order to generate the growth and expansion that you are? And, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, without cash, um, you know, you can't continue, you know, cash is king in, in this world. So those are the, those are the four vital senses as, 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 we, as we bring them down. How, how do you think that things have changed over the last couple of years where before it was growth at all cost and now OPEX is a little bit more important, maybe a lot more important, uh, you know, burn versus growth? We're, we're definitely seeing we're definitely seeing companies orient or more around efficiency or um, I should say, you know, healthy, healthy cash spend versus growth at all costs. And I think that this is something that you're seeing from. A lot of different investors, although it's a little bit more of a nuanced uh, answer than that, because I think it really depends on who you are as a business, how mature you are, i.e., what stage you are, and who your yes. end customers are. Because you know the the broader the broader macro climate has affected different end customers in different ways. Is is that there are some customers again, as we were going back towards logistics and e commerce. That can, can, that can continue to grow in the way that they are or what segment you're selling into, you know, enterprises versus SMBs versus mid-market customers are being affected in different ways by, you know, more expensive capital, you know, not only are interest rates increasing, but I think most venture investors are being more judicious about the deals that they're doing. And, you know, it's, it's hard to say exactly. I mean, there's been a lot of conversation around, you know, the rule of 40, 
where it's the balance of the growth and efficiency that you have as a business. We're, we're definitely seeing, um, not necessarily at the Series A and Series B, but more broadly speaking, companies that are, are spending more responsibly. But, you know, if, if you're growing very efficiently, you're participating in a big market and you are the market leader, continuing to emphasize around growth might actually be the most responsible thing for you to be doing. Because if you have two or three other competitors that uh, are, are chasing you down in the market, it's only a matter of time before they run past you. And so to dial back around, you know, making sure that you're, you know, fine tuning efficiency to the nth degree, if you've got three or four people behind you, might not actually be the right thing. I think that's one of the best answers I've heard. It's not a one size fits all of, of here's what to do because this has happened in the economy. It's not that simple. And right. I really like the way you break that down. It depends on your, your revenue stage. It depends on where you are in the market. It depends on who you're going after because it, it's exactly right. If we look back to like the beginning of the pandemic, there are companies whose businesses stopped completely. And there right. are some whose, whose businesses just exploded off the charts growth. And so it Absolutely. doesn't affect everybody equally. It, it, it doesn't. And, and I think, I think just to say, to orient around efficiency, i.e. to cut your burn, um, it, it's, it's kind of a blanket answer that may be very relevant to what you're doing, or it might be completely irrelevant. So I think, I think folks should look very, very carefully, you know, again, in a number of different dimensions, who you are as a business, what stage you are as a business, what does your competitive market look like, and, and who are your end customers and how are they being affected? Right. We're seeing, you know, last few weeks or few months have been, you know, riddled with news about various layoffs, you know, you know, across the board at different tech companies, some of them, you know, being very, very mature businesses. Right. If you're a founder that is selling exclusively into other SaaS businesses, you might be running into a world where budgets are being tightened and it might be a little bit harder to close those deals than it was, you know, 18, 24 months ago. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think it's a Absolutely. very, very good, very good insight into the the market and how you're thinking about that. Well, thanks. What do you think about uh, the financial future? How has it affected your your investment strategy? Uh, you know, what are you looking at for the the remainder of this year and next year? Yeah, and you know, again, I I wish I I wish I had a crystal ball, and, and you know, un, un, unfortunately, I don't. I, we I all. Don't. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I I can tell you how it's affected our business, if at all, um, and, and the differences in what we're seeing in the market. I mean, you know, we've been in the fortunate position to have been around for a very long time as a firm. Um, you know, we're currently investing out of our, out of our seventh institutional fund and, you know, have, have had an incredibly supportive LP base over the last 20 plus years, um, you know, that have supported us in, in raising an eighth fund, uh, which we, which we closed last fall. And, you know, we'll probably transition. We're still investing out of our seventh fund and we'll probably transition over to our eighth fund over the course of the next few deals that we do and are very thankful to, to have that financial runway to continue investing because, you know, it's, it's a mix of what we're seeing out there. Um, sure. You know, there are certain companies that we've seen um, where valuation expectations have come down precipitously. I mean, I think that that first hit the public markets, which everybody saw. Then it hit the late, later stage, you know, private investors and then the mid-stage investors. And now we're starting to see it trickle down into our world where, you know, there are some series A's and B's where the pricing and environment has, has adjusted considerably. But then there's other companies that where the pricing expectations are very similar to where they were, um, you know, 12, 18 months ago. You know, and that's to say that, you know, there are always great companies that are built uh, even during uncertain times. I mean, you know, you read the stories about Box and Airbnb and Dropbox and Uber. Yep. I mean, they, those, those businesses exactly were right. all formed, you know, in the 2007, 2008, 2009 timeframe, or they had their early innings there where there was just a ton of uncertainty in the market. And, you know, we're excited about those opportunities. This is, is that, you know, we feel like at that at this stage, you know, we can still experience a step function reduction in risk relative to seed investors that don't get to see any revenue and the, some of the later stage investors that have to take on a, a, a pretty hefty valuation risk uh, in the assumption that you know, the public markets are going to stand up on the same types of multiples that they invested in. For us, I mean, we, we love that inflection point where you get those early signals because things that are in motion tend to stay in motion to a certain degree. Right. I think that's unique about uh, what you're doing there at Score Venture Partners and, and maybe some of the other firms that are later stage. Is, uh, is there's still those opportunities and you're able to, to see those early on? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, if, if you look, I mean, there there are hundreds of venture firms out there. There's no question. Um, and there's a number of them that have been around just as long or if, if not longer than we have. Um, you know, when you when you cut through a, a lot of the details, I mean, you know, people ask who our who our greatest competitors are. And, you know, we we don't tend to see the same names over and over again because there are very few funds that are the same size that we are that focus exclusively on on the B2B slash enterprise world and don't do anything else. Right. You know, a lot of a lot of our competitors are, are much bigger funds. Um, you know, they they have different teams that focus on healthcare and B2B and consumer right. and bio and frontier. Um, you know, we, we try not to get distracted. Yeah. You know, from what we're doing. I mean, if you look across the board of, of our last, you know, seven funds, I mean, they've been, they've been very consistent, uh, not only in terms of size, but um, the targets of what, of what we're working on. It's, it's really been that first or second go to market round 95% of the time. And, and we like where we play. So you, you've done this for quite a while. What, uh, you know, maybe the, the most memorable presentation in a great way and, uh, and a mistake wow. or two that uh, the founders have made and it just killed a deal. And you can mention companies or not. Yeah. Uh, that's um, I'd, have to, I'd have to think about it. I mean, you know, it, it's, I mean, informally, each one of us sees hundreds of different quote unquote presentations a year, right? Sure. These are, these are informal pitch decks, whether or not the company is actually raising capital or not. Um, and then, you know, of, of course, you know, one of one of the final stages for us uh, is is that the entrepreneur will not just present to the deal team, but they get a chance to meet the entire partnership and vice versa. We get to meet them. Um, and, and that's more of an hour long presentation. We were doing a lot of stuff over Zoom because we had to. But uh, more recently, they've come back in person and. You know, there's a couple that have stuck out, uh, and I, I don't, I'm not sure if it's the right call to name names, but um, this this founder is, is one of my favorite teams in our portfolio, so I can say that we did make the investment. We're very happy that we made the investment. That's awesome. Um, but there was just a glaring math error in their presentation <laughs> when, <it> got, <laughs> when they got to the financial slide, and he caught the CEO caught it immediately, um, and he says. Just very casually. I mean, and I, I just love the way that this rolled off. He said, wait, that number's wrong. And I know it's wrong. And I can't believe that I'm asking you all for $20 million. <laughs> when, <there's, laughs> when it's very clear that there's somebody here that didn't do the right math. Anyway, that's funny. No, no, no name to name the name. But that person is in the portfolio. And we're thrilled to have partnered with them. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, I think that that's a really good story. Because, you know, what do you do as a leader? You look at that and you can try and gloss over it. Or you just don't. Totally. Yeah, he just to totally owned it. And, you know, it was, it was one of these situations where everybody in the room laughed. And, and I think it just opened up. And, and, you know, this this team is, again, one of our favorite teams to work with in the portfolio. And, you know, it's they it, it just showed this level of humility as, you know, we're all human beings. We make mistakes sometimes. Sure. Of course, their team didn't intentionally do that. But he caught it. And as opposed to trying to hide it, he was just super open about it. And he was like, look, we made a mistake and made a really funny <laughs> about it in front of all of us <laughs> and those are the kind of people that you really want to work with exactly exactly yeah. and you know I, I think i mean a lot of people talk about culture and you know it's 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 easy to overlook um you know when there, there's so much financial gravitas um you know around the investment decision um but you know culture is not something that you can manufacture it's just it's just something that happens organically around typically around the founding team uh and the values that they bring to the business and, and that was just one of the, the very clear moments where I was like, wow, what, what this team is, is, is clearly building and, and, the, and the leaders are, are they're, they're building a transparent culture and they're building something that I think other that is going to be a vehicle to attract other great talent. And that's one of the things that we look for, too. No, that's great. Yeah. Any any mistakes that you've seen that just absolutely killed the deal? I'm thinking about that one. I'm, <laughs> and I'm you don't sure have to name names I'm, there. I'm not, I'm not sure that I've seen, you know, once, once a presentation, you know, we, we typically will save uh, the quote unquote, the final presentation for fairly late on in our diligence process. Cause we, we, the funding raising process is as chaotic as it can be for entrepreneurs. Sure. And we want to be, we want to be as sensitive as we possibly can be about their time and, you know, we don't ask somebody to come in and present unless we're really, we're taking the investment really, really seriously. And, you know, at, at that point, the deal team has vetted, has vetted the team, has vetted the technology, has vetted the financials 
and with this with a very very deep level of scrutiny such that like having a, a total flop um, or a red flag within the presentation is pretty rare. I'm, I'm struggling to come up with something where uh, there, there was something within the presentation that just completely killed the deal. I mean, we, we have, tur- we have walked away from deals, uh, not necessarily because of something that was said or done in a presentation, uh, but something that we uncovered later on as part of the diligence process or pricing expectations that were just completely misaligned with sure. where, where they thought they would be and what the entrepreneur wanted. But yeah, that's a that's a good question. I mean, and probably a juicier one than I than I can think of right off the top. What about <laughs> some red flags? Yeah. Maybe early on red flags that you see and you just go, this is not moving further. I, I think every once in a blue moon you get the sense that there's something fishy about a business or you you're you're tipped off about uh around somebody not telling you the truth um or trying to hide trying to hide something in the story that they're presenting where um either something that they've told you you've asked the same question in a couple of different ways and you get different answers or um, a refusal to, uh, I mean, you know, we all, our diligence requests are pretty standard and, and we don't ask for anything unusual. The refusal to reveal information uh, during a diligence process is, is always a, I don't want to say it's a, a red flag, but it's something that you know, gets your mind going. The notion of trust is clearly the most important thing. I mean, you know, our average holding period as a business is, is you know, seven, eight, sometimes 10 years. And you're, you're in business uh, and or on the board of that business for close to a decade sometimes. And, you know, that's a partnership. And, you know, to think early on in a diligence process that there might not be the foundations of trust in that relationship, uh, that for me is, is a red flag and not something that I could ever sleep well at night, just, you know, wondering whether or not the person might be lying to you. Again, That's it's a really like a good answer. And it, it, again, it's those situations are rare, but every once in a while, um, you know, a couple of times a year, you know, and this is out of hundreds and hundreds of companies that we speak sure. to, you catch something early on where you're like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not quite sure that. I'm not quite sure that that's that's the right you know the right way that I want to be going now. You know, and especially you've got to be we've got to be incredibly careful. I mean, you know, our um, we're investing significant sums of money on on behalf of LPs that have trusted us in many cases for decades and decades. And we want to evaluate that with a really high degree of scrutiny. And, you know, you read all the time about instances of, of, of financial fraud or, uh, or otherwise at a company. And, and um, you, you obviously want, you know, if there's something that's really early on that's, um, that's tipping you off, that there might be something that's not quite right about the business, chances are you're probably onto something. Yeah, that's really good to know. It, yeah. It's an interesting hold time as well. It's not a typical, you know, three, five year get in, get out. Right. And so that that's a very different thing. Uh, I think there's absolutely. a lot of value in that kind of a partnership. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, in 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 most cases, I mean, nine nine cases out of ten, maybe even more, um, we're we're taking an active role in in the company. You know, we're we like to to lead the rounds that we do. Um, we like to take a board seat. You know, ma- mainly so that you know that's we have visibility over you know our investment, but but also too, I mean, we find that it's the best way to to work with management closely. And, and to help bring some of the playbooks that, you know, we've been building over the course of, of, of the firm's life. And, and for us, I mean, great companies take a long time to build. I mean, one yes. of the biggest misconceptions about the Valley is, is that they think people get rich really quickly. And in, in fact, it's a, it's a super slow process and a lot can go wrong along the way. Uh, and, That's not how it works you know, on TV. <laughs> <laughs> you just roll know, out of bed right? and build a unicorn. It's, you know, I, I think if we look over the course of the life, you know, it, it's funny when I moved out, you, you asked about the different earlier, you asked about the differences between, um, you know, the East and West coast mentality. Right. And I, I think there was a, there was a mentality that was surprising to me when I moved out to the West coast about how, how fast things move. And, um, you know, you know, East coast mentality is a, a little bit more structured. And, you know, I mean, again, like the, the lines are blurring a little bit more than they were, than they ever have. But I, I brought a little bit, uh, it was just an eye-opening experience for me. And, uh, you know, but the even great companies take a long time to be built. I mean, if I look at some of the, you know, more successful exits that, that we've had in our portfolio, I mean, you know, Box and, and DocuSign, I mean, you know, Box was, was founded in the early 2000s, same with DocuSign. Um, you know, and it was over a decade in both cases before both companies went public. And, it, you know, it's like people don't appreciate how long it takes to build a really enduring business. But that's a lot faster than it happens in some other verticals that are much more equipment and capital intensive. Sure, sure. 
and even you know those success stories it you know you see that on the on the outside and the success and the IPO and it's taken this time but uh, so many things happen on the inside you know oh, so many goodness. close calls so many crises <laughs> that, uh, that you have to lead through Absolutely. And, and, you know, the, the IPO is, is, is a, is a really nice milestone in a company's history, but it's, it's really just turning the page into a new chapter of that company's development. Right. I mean, that's when it can get really difficult. And, you know, you've got to report your business to, to public stakeholders and, you know, do so not only on a quarterly, but an annual basis. And you're being judged, um, you know, not just every quarter, but every, every millisecond that, you know, folks are able to trade your stock. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> and um, the level of, of scrutiny and, and the level of preparation that I think, uh, you know, as, as I look at some of the later stage uh, businesses that I've had the fortune of working with is, is, is that um, IPO prep takes years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not just something that, you know, a decision that's, that's made at the management or at the board level and say, Oh, we're going to go public tomorrow. Like, <laughs> This is a this is a very methodical process that I think a lot of people kind of in, in, in a difficult process that a lot of people underestimate. And working with uh, companies that you've invested in, being on having those board seats, what are the best ways for CEOs, founders to work with you as board members? You know, I, I always you know, going back to to building a great relationship, right? I mean. I think good business partnerships are are often like like good friendships, right? You, you know, being being transparent about where you are um, as a leader, you know, what's going well, but also highlighting the things that are not going well. And you know, there's there's a million different answers here, but you know, I, I think the level of transparency and and and, and respect is, is is that everybody's in this together, right? And it and you know, if things work out, it works out to everybody's benefit. And if they don't work out, everybody's going down in the same ship, right? But just having regular regular check-ins, um, you know, being honest about where you know where we as board members can can help, and you know, the skill sets that and pattern recognition and matching that we've seen over the course of the last however many decades that are relevant to the, to the business at time. But every business is unique, right? And, and you know, our, our leaders understand their business, um, you know, 10 times better than, than we do as investors from the outside in some respects. Sure. And, but just having having that relationship and, and um, you know, sense of, of, of where to lean in and, and, and where, where not to, um, that transparency is just a key ingredient to, to, to great relationships and, and just getting a better understanding in the beginning of like, what's the best way to work with you guys? You know, how do you like to communicate? Do you like, <laughs> do you like the weekly calls, <laughs> like the daily calls, <laughs> you know, the emails back and forth? Like what, what is the best way to, you know, to report on what's going well? What's the best way to give feedback? What's the best way to, to help in and to jump in when to jump in? Um, all of that stuff is different every time, but just setting expectations up front, I think is a key ingredient. Yeah, that's really, really helpful. Just making sure. sure everybody's on the, the same page. Yeah. I've, had, I've had good boards. I've had bad boards. I've had no boards. And, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the good ones are absolutely invaluable. But I think there are very few that uh, they really have, have been great for a lot of, uh, a lot of founders. Right. Yeah, and, more more know, figureheads every, instead of relationships. Right. And, you know, you know, some of, some of my partners have served on hundreds of, of different boards at this point. And, you know, I've, I've had the fortune of working with, you know, call it 10 or 12 at, at, at this stage. And what I can say is, is that everyone is a little bit different. And again, going back to your question about, like, you know, what to do in, in 20, you know, in, in February, 2023 uh, as a business and, you know, do you balance growth? Do you balance burn? The question is similar. It's like how to manage board. Every board's a little bit, every, sure. every, every conversation is a little bit different. And uh, I think it, it depends on a whole variety of circumstances and people uh, rather than just having one blanket answer, if that makes sense. It does. It does. Well, where can people learn more about you and about Scale Venture Partners online? Any, anyone who's interested out there, and, and thanks, folks, for tuning in, um, is, you know, scale, our, our website is, is scalevp.com, um, you know, not only about, you know, our strategy and what we do as a firm, but some of the portfolio companies that we've had the fortune of, of partnering with and, and some of the folks um, on the team here as well. You know, we're, we're active on, on most social media channels, um, you know, whether it's LinkedIn or, or Twitter. You know, my, my bio is available on, on, in both cases. And, um, you know, my email is sam at scalevp.com, you know, for folks that are interested in reaching out. And I always love to have conversations, especially with folks in the audience. 
Excellent. We'll make sure and link all of that in the show notes. And uh, the blog post the six signs of go-to-market repeatability and the four Perfect. vital signs of SaaS right there into the, uh, the Scale website, the Scale Studio. Cool. And lots of good insights, benchmarks on the, the scalevp.com site uh, over there under Scale Studio and the, the tools as well. So lots of good information. Awesome. Well, Jeff, thanks so much for having me on today. It's been, it's been fun chatting with you. Yeah, it was great talking with you, Sam. Thanks. Absolutely. Thanks again, Sam, for coming on the show and sharing your insight and industry perspective. You know, I love what y'all are doing at Scale Venture Partners. You can learn more about Sam and Scale Venture Partners at scalevp.com. All links, highlights, resources, and full show notes are available at sasfuel.com. If you're enjoying the show and getting value, hit that subscribe link or follow us. And check out our new channel on YouTube with video podcast episodes, SaaS growth strategies, and shorts, which everybody is liking a lot. Everyone who subscribes this week receive a rock from Mars. Yes, the actual red planet. It's guaranteed to be a great conversation piece, not just a paperweight. Please allow 30 to 60 years for shipping and handling. Join us next time for SaaS founder, Dr. Jonathan Bakhtari, CEO of both E7 Health and U.S. Drug Test Centers. They've been called the Uber of preventive medicine for good reason. SaaS and tech are solving patient care and employer convenience challenges all across healthcare. Our expert next week is Phil Alvis, CEO and principal consultant at DevSquad. He's led the build of over 100 SaaS products for bootstrap founders and VC-funded startups alike. You won't want to miss that one. He is a wealth of knowledge. And you can find out what he's up to today. So not just building for other people, but there's quite a bit more to the story. So we'll see you next time. And as always, enjoy the journey. Thanks for listening to SaaS Fuel. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at sasfuel.com. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash sasfuel. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes. Let's go!